welcome guys welcome welcome back to another episode of almost well versed welcome back for episode three i've been loving doing this guys it's been a lot of fun sitting down every other week and going through books that i've been reading um like i've mentioned earlier you know i'm trying to reach this reading goal of 40 books this year i don't have very many there's not a lot of weeks left in 2019 so i'm trying to i think i have nine books left so i'm really trying to buckle down and finish by the end of december but yeah it's been a lot of fun i'll tell you that it's been a lot of fun sitting down and reliving these books that i've read you know sometimes when you read a lot um not necessarily that stories start to run together but you know if you're reading a lot the books that you read a while ago start to fade from memory just because you're always replacing that with um, a new book but this is a way for me to kind of, you know, have a living memory of sorts of all these really interesting books that I've been reading this year. But yeah, so last week's episode was a lot of fun. Um, I've been loving hearing you guys tell me about what you thought about Forgotten Bones. Um, that book's a trip, right? <laughs> but yeah, so this week we're actually going to switch it up a little bit. Another genre that I've always really enjoyed, but it's not necessarily the most fun to talk about, are autobiographies. Um, I used to read a lot of autobiographies, like when I was in high school. Um, nowadays, I mean, people still write autobiographies, sure, but, you know, I kind of just fall into the pattern of reading things in the genres I'm most familiar with, you know, like fantasy, sci-fi, stuff like that. Um, but I decided to branch out, revisit an old love of mine, and I picked up this book from Edward McKay um, for 75 cents, which is so cheap, guys. Uh, Ed McKay is just kind of like a used bookstore. It's like a used media store. They got books and movies, comics, everything. Um, but yeah, I found this book on a little discount rack for a whole 75 cents. I was like, got it, Roger. <laughs> so this book um, is written by um, a lady named Susanna Cahillan. Cahillan? Not Callahan, Cahillan. Um, and it's called Brain on Fire, My Month of Madness. And so this book was written in 2012 by Susanna. And it tells the story of her month in madness. And that's literally what it sounds like for pretty much a solid month. Um, she was crazy and doctors couldn't tell her what was wrong with her, um, which is really wild. So I will preface this by saying reading this book gave me a lot of anxiety. The entire time I'm reading this book, I'm just sitting there like, what if, how do you know that you're going crazy, right? Like you're saying like, you're going through things that you normally wouldn't go through. You're trying to describe it to people who are trying to write it off as just, oh, you're tired or, oh, you're PMSing, whatever. But then it's really like a dire medical situation. And so reading this, the entire time I'm reading this book, I'm going in my head like, oh, am I going crazy and nobody's telling me? You know what I mean? Like there's... But aside from the anxiety this book gave me, it was a fabulous read, a great read. Um, the interesting thing about it is, so it is an autobiography, but that month that she was in her quote unquote madness, she has no recollection of that time. Um, so, I mean, I'll, I'll get into it, like, you know, what really ended up happening in her diagnosis and stuff like that. But 
for that month, one of the symptoms of her sickness was short-term memory loss. And so it's, it was pretty much a solid month when she was in the hospital. Um, and the only recollection she has of those days are either um, her parents kept a diary of what was happening like day to day when they were talking to doctors and stuff. So she has that to go off of. There's various like videotapes um, that they did while they were observing her. Um, so they, she's got like, you know, reels of tape when she was being observed when she was in the hospital. And then, you know, just stories from her family and her significant other of during this time period. So it was really interesting her writing a book describing the time that she doesn't even remember. But yeah, so let's just jump right into it, right? So at the start of the book, um, this happens to her when she is 24 years old. And so I'll tell you this, leading up to this time, Susanna was completely a regular person, right? So like she lives in New York, she's got a good job. Um, she was actually a journalist for the New York Post and she had uh, started that job right out of college. She's got a great stable relationship with a boyfriend named Steven. Um, you know, she has a pretty good relationship with her parents. Her parents are divorced at this time and they don't really talk to each other, but you know, she has a really good relationship with her mom and her dad separately. You know, so she's just trying to live in she's just trying to live her life in New York at 24. Nobody knows what you're doing what you want to do when you're 24. You know, she's just trying to figure out balancing a life and a significant other and yada yada. And so the book starts, um, it jumps right in how she first recognized something was wrong, like that not everything was right, okay? So seemingly overnight, she becomes obsessed with the idea that her apartment is infested with bed bugs. And so she was never really um, an anxious person or anything like that up until this point. And so when she literally wakes up one day and convinces herself that, she's her apartment is infested with bed bugs because she finds like two little bites on her arm right and so she panics she's panicking and so she like hires an exterminator who comes in and he you know checks it out and he's like ma'am uh there's nothing wrong here like you don't have bed bugs but she's convinced at this point so she pays him an exuberant amount of money to fumigate her apartment and she starts to get ready for the fumigation you know she's got a pick up all her um all her stuff like get all her junk out of the way and so usually she was she's the type of person not really a pack rat but she would keep you know important news articles um stuff from her childhood just you know as any sane regular person would and so when she's getting ready for the exterminator to come she just starts bagging up all her stuff into trash bags and just throws it all away and for her like on upon reflection she's like that's nothing like how I am like I wouldn't just why would you start a collection of something for like years and years to just dump it in a bag and throw it away right so that's strike one <laughs> um strike two she starts having auditory hallucinations and so you know she'll be like on the subway on her way to work and she'll hear somebody calling her name or she's thinking uh, she's overhearing people behind her like talking about her as if they know who she is and you know she's looking around freaking out like oh why are you talking about me when really nobody of course nobody's talking about her and so at this point she she just thinks that she's tired you know she's not really she's not putting a name on these hallucinations right she's just like you know like when you've been awake for a really long time you start getting a little paranoid your brain starts playing tricks on you so you know she just she just thinks it's a situation like that and so 
right around the same time that these hallucination hallucinations start, um, she starts becoming like irrationally jealous and paranoid when it comes to her boyfriend, Steven. And so, like I said, you know, up until this point, they've had a really good relationship, a really stable relationship. You know, they're both really into each other. They don't live together, but you know, they see each other a lot. It's a good, it's a good time. Um, but she starts having these irrational thoughts of like, oh, I bet you he's cheating on me. Um, I need to go through his phone. I bet he has cameras set up in his apartment so he can like look at me when, when he's not home to see what I'm doing. Just like, just crazy, just crazy stuff. And along with that, being uh, rationally jealous and getting this paranoia, she stops eating. So she has like a complete aversion to food um she wasn't really a foodie but like she stops eating you know they go out for dinner her and steven go out for dinner and he orders her like a chicken sandwich and she doesn't even touch it she just is revolted by it and you know along with this aversion to food she's not sleeping either she has like crazy insomnia so she's not eating she's not sleeping she's super paranoid and so like a week in she's losing it you know what I mean like you need sleep and you need food to function like a normal human being and she's not getting any of those things and so this is progressing like day by day and then one day she gets like a super serious case of nausea um, but the nausea is accompanied by like intense migraine pains and she's never been one to have migraines so she is alarmed so she calls her, um, she calls her gyno, her gynecologist to explain some of those symptoms with her or with him. It's a dude doctor. And the doctor is immediately, he's like that you're talking crazy. Like these are some not regular symptoms of like PMS or things like that. You should see a neurologist. And so immediately she gets scared. You know, if you call, if you casually call, somebody who's like oh you should skip the doctor skip the er you need to go straight to a neurologist something's up so she's like whoa a neurologist so instead of doing the neurologist she just goes and sees her primary care doctor right that doctor she's been seeing him since she was like a kid you know she kind of grew up seeing this guy and so she goes to the doctor and he does like the normal test you know checks checks her reflexes her blood pressure all that stuff and uh, everything comes back pretty normal you know like her blood pressure is a little high like her heart rate's a little high but you know nothing alarming and so the doctor pretty much just guesses that she has mono right so he's like you know I'm gonna take this we're gonna do the swab and we're gonna send off the cultures but I'm pretty sure you have mono so you just need to chill out and actually sleep right and so she's like, cool, I just have mono, fine, you can live with that. So she she goes back trying to live like normal, but she's still not eating, she's still not sleeping, she's still having these auditory hallucinations. And then a couple days later, she gets a call back from the doctor, and the doctor was like, hey, I know I said that you have mono, but that mono text test actually came back negative. Um, so I don't really know what's going on. And she's like, oh, well, that's that's nice right and so (laughs) she is trying to continue her journalism and she's just at this point she's just like not even making sense you know it's been like two weeks of her not eating not sleeping living with this super heightened anxiety so she's unraveling right 
And so then one day at work, she gets her boss is like, hey, I feel like this would be a really good opportunity for you. We have the option to do an interview with some guy named John Walsh. And I want you to be the one to go and do this interview with him. So, you know, she's super pumped. You know, this is going to be a really big break. This is a nice, um, a nice opportunity for someone not really up and coming, but, you know, trying to make their foothold in the workforce. And so she can't get prepared. Like at this point, she can't even think straight. Right. So she goes to the interview and she's just like a mess, you know, like her hair is strung out. She's super pale. She's talking nonsense. Like she's just like mumbling, like not even speaking coherent thoughts. And his whole team, the John Walsh team is like, who is this? Right. And so she she can't even like do the interview. And so they end up calling it off early um, and sending her home. And then ironically, that's actually the la- that's the last interview that she does for almost seven months. So you can already tell that this isn't like a go to the doctor and get a shot and be better type situation, right? And so the next day at work, she's telling her work buddy about how bad the interview went. And she pretty much just has a breakdown. Um, she is crying. She's saying how overwhelmed she is by everything. She doesn't think she's cut out to be a journalist. She doesn't think that she can handle a serious relationship with her boyfriend. All this just talking nonsense. And her friend is like, what is happening right now? Like, this is not like you. And then a second later, she's just laughing hysterically. She's just giggling like a mad woman. And her friend is like, okay, this is not, this is not okay. And so the friend tells the boss who sends her home early. And so on her way home, she's experiencing like extreme light sensitivity. Like when she's looking at the billboards and the signs for the subway and stuff, like she can't even look at it because it's so bright and she's just having to stumble her way home. And so she tells Steven about her, you know, she tells her boyfriend Steven about it and he makes her a nice dinner to try to cheer her up, um, makes her like her favorite Italian dish. And, you know, she's still not eating and she'll still has this super aversion to food. So she kind of just picks at it. And Steven, Steven's starting to get worried because he's like, this is not like her, you know? And so that night they're sitting there and they're watching TV and he turns to look at her and she's in the middle of having a full blown seizure, right? Like she's foaming at the mouth, she's clenched up and he, It's like, oh my God, he freaks out and, you know, he lays her down on the side and calls the ambulance and they end up going to the hospital. And so when they're running tests to see why she just had this random onset seizure, they realize that she's been having a series of mini seizures over the week. And this was the first noticeable seizure that she's had. So up to this point, you know, she's having a dozen seizures and not even realizing. And that blackout that she had that major seizure she had with her boyfriend is pretty much the defining line between her being sane and slipping into this insanity for the next month yeah things are getting crazy already we're only like a couple chapters in at this point right like I was saying earlier who her lucidity comes and goes like she some moments she'll be completely lucid she'll she'll know what's going on she'll know where she is and then the next minute she'll just be talking nonsense just paranoia just nonsense right while she's in the hospital and you know they're running these tests on her trying to figure out what is causing these seizures they realize that the most uh that the most of her seizures are happening in her temporal lobe 
which is what's causing a lot of her all of her migraine like symptoms you know the light sensitivity um the aversion to food the bipolar symptoms things like that they're all related to your temporal lobe and so the doctors are like well you know she hasn't had another seizure since she's been in here so we're gonna discharge her and her parents are like how are you just gonna you can't just discharge somebody who's having random seizures like excuse me um, but so they, they do discharge her cause they're like, there's nothing more we can do for her, but we do recommend that you go see a neurologist. And so this is the second time a neurologist has come up in conversation. Right. And so her parents are like, well, I guess we got to take her to a neurologist. Right. And so the parents take her home. They don't trust her to be alone. Right. So the parents, uh, take her home. Well, I think her mom takes her home and, you know, sets her up to spend the night with her. And at this point, she's completely not acting like herself, right? So she's being like loud and demanding. Like they go out for dinner to a restaurant and she just marches in there and is like, I want food. And they're like, excuse me? Like she's just standing in the middle of the restaurant like, I want food. I want chicken fingers and I want french fries now. And they're like, all right. And her mom's like, chill out, girl, sit down. Um, <laughs> And... Uh, yeah, so like I said, her parents take her uh, to their house just to keep her eye on her, and they want to take her to the neurologist, but of course, you have to make that appointment a ways out, so there's no like immediate openings. So the mom gets the idea to take her to um, their psychiatrist, and the psychiatrist takes one look at her and is like, oh yeah, she's bipolar. And the parents are like, how do you just know that? right like you haven't done any tests you haven't looked into her medical history or anything like that and the psych the psychiatrist is like yep that's it she's bipolar and so you know Susanna hears that and so when people start asking you know how is she feeling she's just like yep I'm bipolar that's it but her mom and her dad both of them are like that's not I don't believe that right so they they want her to go to the neurologist actually get like you know like an EKG done intensive tests because she's not acting like herself right and so the next week she pretty much takes the next week off of work um she's just hanging out at the house with her mom but like literally every day she's just mentally deteriorating she's getting worse and worse like she can't form full thoughts she's just rambling she's really just reverting to childlike behavior which is alarming right And so her parents finally get her in to the hospital for an emergency EEG. And so when she's in there, they're in there, they're running the test. And then she gets the idea in her head that her parents, her parents have orchestrated this whole thing, right? She's not sick. Her parents have hired this doctor and hired this nurse to set her up to think that she's crazy because they want her back home with them. And as soon as you hear that, you can think, oh, she's experiencing extreme paranoia, which is even worse. Like, slight paranoia is fine. You know, it's not healthy per se, but it's fine. But this is, mm, this is a lot. Like, this is extreme paranoia. The parents put their foot down and they're like, girl, what are you talking crazy? Like, what are you talking about, right? And the doctors, after they get, like, the EEG results, they're like, well, all of the tests came back normal. Like, everything came back completely normal, so I don't know what we should do. But the parents are like, we can't take her back home, right? Like, look at her. She's acting like a child. We can't, we can't do this anymore. You have to, you have to admit her. And so they finally um, get her admitted to the hospital at NYU um, just for 
24 hours so she can be watched um, because she has two more seizures up to this point. So she's had three major seizures and then who knows how many mini seizures and they don't know what to do. So they put her they put her in the epileptic ward just to be observed for these 24 hours so they can, you know, keep a track on brain activity, things like that. But it's literally at that time, her getting admitted to the hospital is her identifiable moment of her loss of self. The book's kind of split into three parts. So we've got that part, which is the first part, which is like her descent into madness. We've got what makes up the biggest chunk of the book, which is her hospital stay. And then the third part, which is her recovery. And so in this hospital section, like I said, she gets admitted at first is just supposed to be for a 24 hour observation. She has another seizure. So at this point we're up to five seizures over the past three days, even after the doctors prescribed her anti-seizure medication, right? So obviously this medicine is not working. They don't know what's causing these seizures. And that first night that she's there, she actually tries to break out because, you know, like I said, she's been having this extreme paranoia. She thinks her parents have orchestrated this whole thing. So she's convinced herself that she needs to break out. She's being held against her will and she needs to get out of here. So she tries to run. But, you know, of course, she gets caught by hospital staff and they put her back in the room. She's just getting like she's still deteriorating. Right. And so there's she gets assigned like her main doctor. And then that doctor consults another doctor and on and on. And so she ends up with a team of doctors um, trying to figure out what's going on, right? So she's got like multiple neurologists, a couple med students, um, psychiatrists. They're all trying to interview her, trying to, you know, get a hold on exactly what her symptoms are and what is happening. But she's exhibiting like extreme manic behavior and to do like a proper interview you have to be in a right state of mind right so they can't continue with these interviews and so interestingly the book is sprinkled like throughout the book she sprinkles um like diary entries that she wrote so when she first starts getting sick she gets the idea to you know her, to get a first-hand account of what's happening so she starts a diary right um but these diary entries become more and more disjointed she's like not finishing thoughts like she'll start a thought and then just move right on to the next thought and so that's where you can really see her descent right yeah so at this point she's so delusional she's thinking everybody's talking about her behind her back you know when they put on the tv she thinks that the tv shows are talking about her like how she's terrible at her job and all this stuff and that second night she tries to break out again Um, But, of course, they catch her. And so they put a personal security guard outside of her door, right, to keep her in there. But because of this second escape attempt, they're afraid that she's not right for the epileptic ward, right? The epileptic ward is supposed to be for people that are having seizures or exhibiting um, epileptic behavior, not necessarily someone with mania, like someone who's being manic. And so the doctors straight up tell the parents, like, hey, if she tries to break out again, you know, we're going to have to transfer her to the psychiatric ward, which nobody wants. Because the psychiatric ward, they're not really going to, you're not going to get the same level of care, per se, that you would on the epileptic ward, right? Yeah, so through all of this, her parents, like I said at the beginning, her parents do have a strained relationship, but they're really trying to put that aside 
and talk to each other like two rational adults trying to take care of their child who is sick, right? And so, like I said, they keep, they start up a diary and they both just have like a running list of questions that they want to ask each doctor when they come in, um, when they come in to take their measurements, to try to do interviews, whatever it may be. And the boyfriend, Steven, you got to give props to Steven because he stays through the whole thing despite her psychosis, right? He sees the Susanna that he knows in there and he knows that she's just sick. As the book goes on, Susanna is just really floored by this level of commitment that he has. Because, I mean, like I said, they're in a serious relationship, but it's not like they're engaged or, you know, it's not like they're married, right? So if he wanted to up and leave, he totally could. But he knows that this isn't her. So he stays. And so as the days go on, um, her being in the hospital, her body is now deteriorating. So her mind is slipping back into, like, this manic childlike behavior but then concurrently her body is deteriorating so she's losing control of her muscle functions um it's really hard for her to walk and to stand up by herself and then but it's curious because as her body is getting worse her psychosis is receding so she's more lucid but her body isn't doing what she wants and so the doctors they notice this even though this is an alarming development her doctors do take notice of this and they decide to um, do a spinal tap which is um, it's a procedure where they stick a big old needle right in between your spine and they take that fluid and so they can analyze that fluid to see if there's you know um, foreign bodies if your white blood cell count is high you can learn a lot from it but it you have to have 100% cooperation from the patient to do this, right? Because if you flinch or if you move when that needle is in your spine, you can literally be paralyzed or die, worst case scenario, right? And so they do the spinal tap and they're waiting for the results to come back. But at this point, she has lost her short-term memory. So, you know, they'll come in and be like, hey, Susanna, you remember when we talked about whatever yesterday? And she'll be like, no. And that's really alarming for doctors because that means that there's something wrong with her hippocampus. And so the spinal tap results finally come back and she does have slightly elevated white blood cells, but that doesn't really mean anything. Slightly elevated just means that there's some type of infection in the body that is, it's trying to fight off, um, but that doesn't really tell you what is wrong. They send, they're trying everything at this point, right? So they sent, they had sent out blood tests to the CDC yeah, that's the CDC um, trying to find like if she has like an infectious disease or something. But literally every test is coming back negative. Um, they test her for over a hundred autoimmune diseases, for infectious diseases. They do MRIs, CAT scans, virus panels. Every like literally everything is coming back negative. And the doctors at this point are stumped. Like they don't know. They have no idea what could be going on, right? And so at this point in time, I think her team of doctors at that point was up to like seven or eight different doctors, but now they're starting to just walk away because they're like, well, this is kind of a lost cause. She may just have psychosis, you know, maybe it's not even something medically extreme. So she ends up losing like, I think three doctors end up walking off of her case, which is really devastating for everybody involved. So the main doctor on her team consults um, a colleague of his named Dr. Najjar. 
this Dr. Najjar, he comes in, he, you know, interviews her, and he's looking at everything they've done so far, and he wants to get her started on something called an IVIG transfusion. And so what this is, it's an immunoglobin infusion, and so it's kind of like if you've ever given plasma or given blood, right? So this transfusion contains healthy antibodies of the donors. And so what they're trying to do is they know that there's some type of infection in her body, right? Because of those elevated white blood cell counts. So what they're trying to do is flush her body of her antibodies and replacing them with healthy antibodies to see if that can get this quote unquote infection under control. They start her on these transfusions, and despite of this new development, um, her speech and motor skills are still getting worse, right? Like, she's talking like her tongue is too big for her mouth. Um, You know, they'll ask her to stick her tongue out, and she really can't. Her face isn't expressive anymore. The doctors, they actually report in her file that she's slipping toward catatonia, which is the absence of behavior. But catatonia, I mean, that's... If you're in a coma, you're catatonic, right? So the absence of behavior. And that is caused by misfiring of the neurons in your brain. So they know it's something wrong with her brain, right? These motor skill, these lack of motor skill functions, um, her not being able to speak and walk, the inability to form short-term memory, these are all brain problems. Dr. Najjar, he takes the time to actually sit down and talk with Susanna as little as she can actually talk but he wants to start at day one right he feels like at this point all these doctors are they're just grasping at straws at this point but he really wants to sit down start from day one and figure out what's going on right so he sits down with her parents to get all of her symptoms everything she's been experiencing during the interview he actually notes that she's behaving like a late-term alzheimer's patient the the behavior that she's exhibiting which doesn't make any sense because she's only 24 and that's what's so alarming to this doctor and so he is asking her all these questions and then he gets the idea to ask her to draw a clock for him that test like drawing a clock that draws upon a lot of things right it's a memory test to see if you remember how to associate words with items if you can draw shapes if you can recall numbers like there's a lot that goes into this seemingly simple test right and so she it takes her a minute but she's able to draw a circle she's able to draw the numbers but then when she presents the paper to him when she's done drawing all of the numbers on the clock are on the right hand side of the clock's face so instead of you know 12 being at the top you got six at the bottom in the middle looping back around to 12 her number one or yeah, 12 is where 12 would be, but then 11 is where like 6 would be. So all of the numbers are on the right-hand side of the clock. As weird and as bad as that may seem, Dr. Najjar, he's actually really excited because that means that there is an identifiable problem with the right hemisphere of her brain. And so this is like the first, up until this point, this is like the first real clue they have of what is wrong with her. And so he starts like a madman, like a mad scientist. He's pulling all the information he has about her symptoms, right? She had numbness on her left side at the very beginning that progressed into seizures. She's got extreme paranoia, those hallucinations. All of this links back to the right hemisphere of her brain possibly being inflamed. 
And through that, he guesses pretty much that it has to be some type, there has to be some type of autoimmune disorder going on, right? But they have no idea what, because if you remember, the CDC ran her blood for a hundred plus auto, like the most common autoimmune diseases, and they all came back negative. And so when he gets all these symptoms and starts trying to piece them together, he literally describes it to her parents as her brain being on fire. Like it's so inflamed and it's so overstimulated that it's starting to stop functioning correctly. And he, he wants to know why. Why is her brain under attack by her own body? After talking to the parents, Dr. Najjar, he decides that the best course of action would be a brain biopsy. And as soon as possible, if they can. And as soon as you hear brain biopsy, that's when it starts getting really scary. I mean, up until this point, it's really scary because she's acting like a completely different person at this point than she normally is. But a brain biopsy is literally cutting open your head and taking a piece of your brain to study. You know, like, that's scary. That's a lot. And her parents are immediately terrified by this idea. And then the dad, he sits and he looks at the doctor and he was like, if, would you do it? You know, if you were in the same situation, would you do it? And the doctor just looks at him and he was like, if that was my child, I would do a brain biopsy. And that's what influences the parents to okay the operation. Like, that was like a Thursday. And so that following... Monday, they prep her and they do the brain biopsy. You know, they make an incision like over her ear and they cut open her skull and they take a piece of the brain out and they staple it all back together. And so by looking at the biopsy results, um, this confirmed Dr. Najjar's suspicion that her brain is indeed inflamed, like very inflamed. And so what's curious, right? So we're going to go into a little science here. What's curious is the brain is considered to be immunodifferent from the rest of the body, right? So like you've got antibodies, floating around all throughout your body that deal with various sicknesses, viruses, whatever. But those antibodies normally don't reach the brain. So the brain is surrounded by something called the triple B, BBB, the blood brain barrier. And that BBB, it regulates the passage of substances into the brain. So pretty much what it does is it stops most things floating around in your body from entering your brain. But in Susanna's case, the immune cells being let in are actually attacking her brain. Specifically, like that right hemisphere is what's really getting pounded. So Dr. Najjar, even though they don't have a name for it, like for what is ailing her yet, so he wants to get her started on aggressive steroids, like aggressive-ass steroids to try to reduce some of that inflammation and to calm her immune system down. Because her immune system is in overdrive right now. For whatever reason, it is attacking her brain like aggressively like how your um, immune system would attack bacteria or a virus but it's doing that to her brain and so he's trying to get that under control before they can do anything else right because if your brain is too inflamed your brain if your brain swells too much you know that can cause permanent brain damage so her samples get sent to a dr dao miao this doctor actually revolutionized research on anti-NMDA receptor encephalitis. Okay, that's a lot of science jargon. I know, I know. I thought that too when I was reading this, but it's important. So we can get through this, guys. And so this doctor, through his research, he, um, he actually found a strain of antibodies that attach to the NMDA receptors in your brain, um, specifically in the hippocampus, right? 
I wish I had a diagram of the brain. If you want to follow along, <laughs> pull up on Google, <laughs> get a picture of the brain so you can see uh, where the hippocampus is. You'll be familiar with like where the temporal lobe is, things like that. And so your NMDA receptors, these are abundant in the brain, but they're most heavily concentrated in the hippocampus. And these receptors are super vital to learning memory and behavior and so if these receptors become incapacitated the mind and the body will literally fail they did research like on rats where they would uh, inhibit those nmda receptors and so if you're born without them you literally cannot survive outside of the womb like your body can't function on its own if you have minimal function of those nmda receptors you'll be able to do those automatic functions like breathing you know, your your blood's able to regulate, but you won't survive very long because you can't do things like swallow, um, you don't have awareness, things like that. So these NMDA receptors are literally vital to living. Like you need those to be able to function. And like I said, uh, the majority of these NMDA receptors are located in the hippocampus, which is the primary learning and memory center for your brain, and also in the frontal lobe, which is the seat of higher learning and personality. I looked this up on Wikipedia, that's why I'm spitting definitions at you. But yeah, so what's happening to Susanna is the antibodies in her body are binding to the neurons in the hippocampus and her frontal lobes, and it's making them unable to send or receive signals. So for whatever reason, her antibodies uh, see her NMDA receptors as bad and are attacking these receptors, and it's literally making her body deteriorate. deteriorate. Because like I said, with that rat study, if you don't have these receptors, you literally die. Like your body can't auto-regulate. And so the Dr. Dalmiao, he analyzes her samples and indeed identifies that she has this anti-NMDA receptor autoimmune encephalitis. And when he discovers this, she's, Susanna is actually only the 217th person ever to be record, uh, reported with this case which is wild. So to recap up to this point, we've had a brain biopsy, they cut a piece of her brain out, they send some samples, they keep some samples, and they send them off to this Dr. Dalmau, who analyzes them against his previous research that he'd done in rats, and indeed, she has an anti-NMDA receptor autoimmune encephalitis. Pretty much what that means is her body is trying to kill itself in like the most layman terms possible, right? So at this point, we've got a name. The doctors are ecstatic. We have a name for what is wrong with her. So that means we can make a game plan, right? And so the Dr. Dao Miao, he wants to start her on an aggressive three-step plan, on a three-step treatment, right? So we've got step one, which is the aggressive steroids that's going to reduce her body's inflammation, specifically in her brain, you know, to stop a uh, potential long-term brain injury. We're going to have that IVIG transfusion that's going to flush her body of her antibodies and replace them with healthy antibodies and something called plasmapheresis, which is the term of flushing her body of her antibodies. So think about it like this. You know, like if you donate plasma, right, they pull out your blood, they spin it fast enough to separate the plasma from your blood you get replaced with your blood and they keep the plasma. So something like that, where they're going to 
draw out her antibodies, but at that same time, they're going to re be replacing them with healthy antibodies to try and regulate her body. At the same time that they start um, her aggressive treatment, they want to do like a cognitive interview with her to really see, to get a baseline of where she is cognitively. So at this point, you know, she's experiencing extreme lethar uh, lethargy. She's barely moving. She's really, she tires out really easily. She's having trouble recalling specifics, you know, like she pretty much exhibiting behavior of somebody who had a serious brain injury, right? So, and then, but the doctors are curious because they're not really sure if this language deficiency is medical, like if it's onset by um, all the medication she's on, or if it's actually like a cognitive disability because of her sickness. And what's really interesting about the whole case, right, is that through all of this, you know, minus the memory loss, but Susanna is very aware of her lack of ability. Like, she knows that she can't talk and that she can't walk well, but it's frustrating because she just can't make her body do what she wants, you know? But even as frustrating as that is, for doctors, that's a good sign because she's self-aware. She's self-aware to know that something's wrong with her, even if she's not able to overcome it yet. And so that same day that they want to do these cognitive ability tests with her, that's when the test results actually come back. That yes, she does indeed have officially anti-NMDA receptor encephalitis. And they literally, and when I say literally, I mean literally caught the disease at the last minute. Because the way the disease progresses is you go from like flu-like and migraine-like symptoms, which progresses to psychosis, which is, you know, the paranoia, the mania, hallucinations, things like that. And then it progresses into the catatonia stage. Once you enter catatonia, there's really no way to come back from it, right? At this point, she is at the beginning of the catatonia stage. That's marked by trouble breathing, coma, most times death. And so at this point, like I said, she is having trouble um, moving and having trouble with her train of thought. And so the doctors really find it imperative to start her treatment to try and reverse this, right? And so through all of this bad news, all through all this science jargon, through all this bad news, the doctors do actually have some optimistic views about her case. Um, it turns out that about 75% of patients that do have this encephalitis fully recover. You know, they may experience some side effects, but for the most part, they're fully recovered. You've got 20% that remain permanently disabled on what a varying scale of disability, and then about 4% of patients do die. But her doctors are really confident that she's going to get at least, at the minimum, she's going to get 90% of the quote-unquote old Susanna back which for them is good news, but for Susanna, you know, that's, that's good and bad, right? Like, what does it mean being 90% of yourself? Does that mean, like, you're not going to remember things? Like, is your memory going to suck? Or is your personality going to be completely changed once you come out of this, you know? And the scary thing is there's no real way to know. It's a cognitive, things that deal with the brain are weird. You know, they really vary person to person. There's no real way to know for sure what's going to happen. It's curious because for some reason the disease surfaces mostly in people that have a teratoma, which is a type of ovarian tumor. Um, sometimes they're benign, sometimes they're malignant. Most times you do want to get them removed because they're, you know, on your ovaries. Um, but it's curious because in Susanna's case, she did not have a teratoma. But for most of the cases that they have on file, um, a majority of the women did have a teratoma. It's curious, like I said. There's no real link between the teratoma 
and encephalitis. And then it's also strange because the people that have the teratoma that end up developing this encephalitis um, will stay in quote-unquote remission. We've got a diagnosis. We've got a treatment plan. And so at this point, the rest of the book just really journeys her process of recovery. The stages of recovery are weird because they actually occur backwards from the way her symptoms appeared, right? So, you know, right now she's in this catatonic stage, you know, the beginnings of it, but she's in the catatonic stage. So then she's going to regress back into psychosis for a while. And then from psychosis, she should be back to normal. What's most interesting is that she's exhibiting symptoms that are associated with a brain injury, but like I said, she's completely self-aware. You know, she's aware that she's not able to recall words and that she's not able to do simple math or to walk by herself, but it's just frustrating because she can't do the things that she knows that she should, right? Like her doctors were saying, um, there's an obvious dissociation between what appears on the outside and what's going on in her inner self. And so the doctors get the idea that she should be put in physical therapy, you know, to try and get her muscles working again. She also should be put into cognitive therapy, which is going to repair that connection. It's going to lessen that dissociation between what you show and then what you feel, right? The rest of the book, like I said, um, it really just chronicles her trying to reintegrate into society, um, trying to be herself again, whatever that may mean, right? So after the doctors, like, uh, get her on that treatment plan, she can actually do all of this recovery at home. Like, she doesn't have to be in the hospital anymore. She does the infusions, like an in-home nurse will come and do the infusions for her. She'll go to the hospital every now and then for checkups. Um, But for the most part, all the medications and stuff, she can take at home. So, you know, they discharge her and she is staying with her mother. Yeah, she's just trying to learn how to be Susanna again. What's interesting about this encephalitis is how much we don't know about this disease, right? Like I said, Susanna was only the 217th person ever to be reported with this case of encephalitis, this specific type of encephalitis. And so doctors still, they know what it is, like there's a name for it, but they still don't know much about it, right? So like they don't know how it's triggered, you know, how much impact does environment versus genetic disposition have to developing this encephalitis. And scarily enough, the only real way to combat it is early detection and then rapid aggressive treatment. I rattled those numbers off earlier where about 4% of cases end up dying. But it's curious because then you think how many how many people were misdiagnosed with like a mental illness or schizophrenia or bipolar when they really had this autoimmune encephalitis that could have been treated and could have potentially saved their lives, you know? I won't super go into her recovery because I feel like that is kind of the most memorable part of the book. And I do recommend that you go read it. Um, it's a shorter read it's only 200 something pages it is a little dense in that middle part you know like I said it was a lot of jargon but it's really for me it was really interesting with all of this science with all these doctors doing all these different tests and stuff Um, but I would recommend you go read the book so you can really get the full scope of her recovery because I feel like that's not something I can really summarize that's something that really only she can something that only she can really explain since it was her going through it you know 
but I will say that she does end up making a complete full recovery. Um, she ends up returning to work almost seven months to the day when she first went to that hospital that first time. And her story, I feel like, is really important because it really shows, shines a light on how many people are diagnosed every day with mental illness that may or may not exist when it could just be an autoimmune disease. I say just, but, you know, an, another type of disease. Yeah, she ends up wrapping the book up with, she ends up doing like a big piece for the New York Post about her descent into, for her month into madness. And that was really what put her name on the book, or what put her name out there, and put a name on the disease. And because of her doing that piece for the Post, thousands and thousands more people have been properly diagnosed with this anti-NMDA receptor encephalitis and are able to go under the correct treatment for that encephalitis, not necessarily a mental illness they don't have, right? I say all that to say she did end up starting a new nonprofit foundation called the Autoimmune Encephalitis Alliance. Um, if you're interested, if you were curious about it, or if you're interested at all, I do encourage you to go check it out. You can learn more at aealliance.org. That's um, the website that you can visit. But yeah, so that was Brain on Fire. Like I said, it's a... It's a little more of a dense read. I mean, autobiographies aren't always happy-go-lucky, right? But even with all that science jargon, it's still really interesting because I do appreciate her factual recounting of this experience that she had. Like I said at the beginning, she had no memory. You know, she had no memory for almost a month. And she's able to piece together, like, the actual narrative that happened between reports and doctor's testimonies and talking to her boyfriend and her parents stuff like that and she's able to give you a pretty accurate depiction of what this encephalitis is and I feel like that's important I won't super go into politics or you know touchy subjects like that but misdiagnosis is a very common thing that happens and I feel like her case really shines a light on this problem we have a misdiagnosis and how important it is to have people that surround you that care about your well-being enough to push for the correct answers for when you get an answer and it's not right to know and to question and to be okay with questioning and to ask your doctors why are you doing this why are you prescribing this you know it's important you should it's important to be informed and important to push when you know there's still more out there so this book ended up, it did end up being a movie, believe it or not. How you turn an autobiography into a movie, I don't know. They do. Um, it was actually a, I think it went, sh if I remember right, it goes, it went straight to Netflix. The movie came out 2016. Hang on, I'm pulling it up. Um, yeah, so it was adapted into a movie in 2016. Um, as you can imagine, it did not do well. It was a straight to Netflix movie, so I mean, this guy was only got a thirty. Uh, it's only got a thirteen percent on Rotten Tomatoes. Ended up with a six point six on IMDb. But it does sto it does star Chloe Grace Mortez, which is that main girl from Kickass. If you've ever seen Kickass, or um, she was also in that horror movie Let Me In. So I mean, she is a good actress, but I just don't know how well this would translate to film. You know what I mean? Um, it also has Tyler Perry is in it some kid named Thomas Mann. I looked at pictures of him. Apparently he's a big deal. I don't know who he is. 
Um, and then you've also got that girl, Jenny Slate, who you would know from, uh, she was on the Kroll show. She had a long stint on SNL. Um, she was the main scientist chick in Venom. Whatever. But yeah, so it was a movie. If you're curious about checking it out, it is on Netflix. I haven't seen it, but yeah. Well, guys, that was Brain on Fire, My Month of Madness by Susanna Cahillan. Like I said, I definitely recommend you check it out. It's a little science heavy in the middle, but it's mad interesting if you are into things like that. Like I'm always I'm always been one to watch, you know, like mystery in the ER and you know, mystery diagnosis where people are sick and nobody knows why. So for me, this was right up my alley. Susanna does a really great job of piecing together this personal narrative with science and with reports and still being able to show that there's a person in there through all of this sickness, right? So check it out. Please let me know what you think about it. I would love to talk to you about it. Yeah. Thank you guys so much for tuning in today. Um, I don't know if I've ever officially said it, but I do try to have an episode out every other Tuesday, just because there is some work that goes into making an episode, right? Like, I'm currently reading a book, but then I've got to take notes on a book that I already read, so I'm kind of skimming through it, lightly rereading it, so at any given time, you know, I'm juggling, like, three books at one time. So there's a little bit of work that goes into it, and then, you know, editing, whatever. But yeah, so every other Tuesday is my goal. Check me out on Twitter. It's a wv podcast um i'm on instagram on the gram as cool kids call it i'm on facebook make sure to give me a like and if you're listening on youtube make sure to like and leave me a nice comment if you enjoyed it (laughs) and share it with your friends yeah i just like books guys books are fun (laughs) and with that i'll see you next time bye (laughs)